You've heard me say before on a Sunday morning that one of the most challenging things for me as a pastor when I sit down in front of the text and, and, and work out what I'm going to say on a Sunday morning is to decide how much of a chapter to take. And I'll have you know that when I started out this, uh, preparing this week, I said, well, I, I want to teach the whole chapter, Mark chapter 13, because the whole chapter flows together so wonderfully, and you can really paint a whole picture by taking a look at chapter 13, and then, of course, getting into it. I see, wow, he deals with so many things, and does, and there's 37 verses, and I can't talk uh, uh, about the whole chapter in, in one week, so I better split this up into two. And so as I was preparing to split it up into two and looking at how the text would lay into splitting up into two weeks, well, this will be the first of three Sundays in Mark chapter 13. <laughs> and we're, we're going to take a look at the first 13 verses. And in this chapter, it's remarkable about how Jesus speaks about the end times. And that's something people are interested in. People are interested in what's going to happen at the end of the age. What God's plan, what his destiny is for this planet and for this human race. And Jesus speaks to that very specifically in Mark chapter 13. But he begins by speaking about a historical event much closer to his own time. And that's where we'll pick it up in Mark chapter 13 at verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher... See what manner of stones and buildings are here. Now Jesus and his disciples were again visiting in Jerusalem. That's not where they made up their home. Jesus' home was in the region of Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem in the region of Judea. But like any faithful Jewish man, Jesus came down to Jerusalem, or rather went up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is set up on a hill and they always speak of going up to Jerusalem, not down to it. Jesus went up to Jerusalem uh, several times a year for the great feasts of Israel. And one of those feasts was the Feast of Passover. And Jesus, along with thousands of pilgrims, would be in the city of Jerusalem at this time for the Feast of Passover. It wasn't the first time he was there. So when the disciple points out to Jesus the marvelous stones and the marvelous buildings of the temple area, don't think that they're like tourists seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. Rather, they're seeing a sight that is so impressive that even though they have seen it many times before, it hits them fresh. You know, some things are just that beautiful, they're just that majestic, that you can have seen them a, a hundred times before, but when you look at it again, you say, that is a spectacular building. Those are amazing stones. And that's how it was with the temple that Herod the Great built, or should I say rebuilt, that temple standing in front of Jesus and his disciples at that time was a rebuilt, a remodeled temple that had stood for thousands of years, originally being built in the days of Ezra and Zerubbabel, about a thousand years, as I said, before the time of, of uh, Herod and Jesus. It was the center of Jewish life for many, many years. And so revered among the Jews that it was customary not to swear by heaven or not to swear by God, but to swear by the temple. And to speak against the temple could be considered blasphemy. And this whole compound that Herod built on top of the Temple Mount was amazing and huge and beautiful. You go to the Temple Mount today. And by the way, my wife and I are privileged to go visiting 
to the city of Jerusalem in just a few weeks. We're going to go with a, a group of pastors who have been invited by a group of people here in Simi Valley. They're taking a whole group of pastors from our city and their wives and some staff people on a trip to Israel, and they're underwriting all the expenses. Well, I'm not going to pass that up. And I think that if any of you ever have an opportunity to go to Israel, that it's well worth it. It really is worth whatever money you would spend to go on a trip like that. Because it's one thing to read about Israel. It's one thing to read about Jerusalem. But to see it with your eyes, it puts the entire Bible into a different, more vivid perspective than you can ever imagine. Well, if you go to the Temple Mount today, and I trust we'll be able to go up on the Temple Mount and see the the grounds there, you see that it's a whole jumble of buildings and shrubbery and, and colonnades and some ancient things and some more modern things. But that's not how it was in the days of Jesus. In the days of Jesus, the Temple Mount was a spectacular, huge area surrounded by a majestic marble porch colonnade and in the midst of a huge huge field of brilliant white marble floor rose the temple itself and thousands of jewish people would crowd the temple courts especially around feast time as it was here it wasn't just big it was beautiful You know, the beauty of the ancient temple is well documented. The Jewish historian Josephus says that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on those gold plates, you couldn't look at them because it would blind you. And where there wasn't gold covering the temple, there was the most brilliant white marble, even so shiny that from a distance people looked at it and thought that there was snow on top of the temple mount. And yet when Jesus looked at it, it wasn't just the beauty of it. If you notice very specifically in verse 1, it says, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. That's especially appropriate given the massive stones that Herod used in building the temple. When you go to Israel, one of the places you have to visit if you have the opportunity is a place called the Rabbi's Tunnel. And it's a place where they take you alongside the western wall and you go down underneath and see some of the huge stones that were used in building the the ancient temple grounds. And when I say huge, I mean huge. If you see the wall behind me here, the size of that wall is about the size of some of the largest of these stones. 50 feet wide say 25 feet tall and 15 or 16 feet deep, these stones are so huge that a modern crane can't lift them up and put them into place. And archaeologists today still sort of scratch their heads and say, how exactly did they cut these and quarry them and put them in place with such precision that you can't fit a playing card in between these stones? It's absolutely amazing. Now, if you think that's something, Those stones that I'm talking about, those were for the retaining wall of the temple. If you put that much work and that much effort and that much engineering into the retaining wall, what does the temple itself look like? No wonder that the ancient Jews said that you haven't seen a beautiful building until you've seen the temple in all of its glory. And they're all showing Jesus the temple and saying, look at it, Jesus, it's so beautiful. We've seen it 20, 30 times before, but it still strikes us again at what a beautiful, beautiful building it is and what majestic stones these are. And look at what Jesus replies in verse 2. You might think he'd say, well, gee whiz, it is beautiful. No, verse 2, 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You almost want to say, Jesus, are you crazy? Look at this thing. It's huge. It's an imposing. We've never seen a building so massively and strongly built. And here, this is the temple for heaven's sake. And you're saying that not only will it be destroyed, but it'll be so leveled that not one stone will be left upon another. And Jesus would have said, that's exactly what I mean. And it happened just as Jesus said. You know, some 40 years after Jesus said these words, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans in Palestine. And the Jewish rebels enjoyed many early successes. But ultimately, Rome, with all their power and with all their legions, they crushed the Jewish people. And Jerusalem was leveled, including the temple, just as Jesus said. It's said that during the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jewish people in the city, they fled to the temple and shut themselves up inside the very building because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. Well, they didn't bother the Romans. They just surrounded the temple and they just wait until they could starve them out or talk them out or whatever they would do. But the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says, that one night a drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole temple building and that the people inside were cruelly incinerated. But the ornate gold work that was all around the temple melted, and as it dripped down, it filled the cracks that were there between the the stones of the great temple building. And they said that the temple should be dismantled stone by stone. They even engineered spectacular explosions to completely destroy the temple grounds and so that the words of Jesus that not one stone would be left upon another were literally fulfilled. So much so that today, if you were to go to the Temple Mount or ask a Jewish archaeologist or historian, they would tell you that they don't know exactly for sure where that temple stood. Isn't that remarkable? Such an amazing structure. And they say, well, you know, it could have been here. It could have been here. We don't know exactly. Now, friends, if you go to Rome, they don't worry or wonder about where the Colosseum stood. It's still there. You go to Athens and you can still see the Parthenon. They're not scratching their heads wondering where it was. But this amazing structure from the ancient world was destroyed so thoroughly that archaeologists have trouble figuring out where it exactly stood. The words of Jesus were fulfilled here exactly. Now, this gives us sort of a a key for the rest of the chapter. If Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another, and as it turned out, not one stone was left upon another, we can figure that Jesus is speaking literally here. Not in make-believe, not in weird uh, symbols or figures. He didn't mean, well, they're going to have a tough time at the temple and, and maybe they'll have a few hard times. No, he meant not one stone will be left upon another. Well, the disciples were fascinated by this. And so when they were able to go away to a different place, they asked him about it. Look at verse 3. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Curiously, they didn't ask him the question as soon as he said it. Maybe they were just too blown away. Maybe they figured, you know, we don't want to talk about the destruction of the temple right when we're standing on the temple grounds. So when they went over to the Mount of Olives, now, the Mount of Olives is across a ravine to the Temple Mount. 
You have the Temple Mount. You have a ravine known as the Valley of Kidron. And then you have the Mount of Olives. Have you ever seen those wonderful pictures of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where it looks down and you can see the golden dome of the dome of the rock shrine right there and you see the Temple Mount and the ancient walls and the city of Jerusalem laid out in front of you? Those photographs are taken from the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives rises above the Temple Mount and looks down upon it. And you can just see Jesus and his disciples, they're discussing things with his disciples, and the disciples say, look at it, Jesus, you see it, it's so beautiful, it's so majestic, and you're saying that it's all going to be leveled. When is it going to happen, Jesus? And what are the signs that you describe? When are they going to be fulfilled? And what's interesting about this is that they really ask two questions in verse 4. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Well, this introduces us to one of the most amazing teachings that our Savior ever gave. And it's called the Olivet Discourse by Bible students and scholars. They call it the Olivet Discourse because he said it on the Mount of Olives. And so they call it, as I said, the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse is recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. And you can really only get a complete picture of what Jesus said by adding together all of those accounts because each one of them highlight or emphasize or amplify a different aspect of what Jesus said on that teaching. This first aspect of answering the question, when will these things be? I want you to know that Mark doesn't really record the answer to it. Luke does. You can go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Do it at a later time. And Luke will describe for you with great detail the siege of the city of Jerusalem and the things that go around and, and the whole destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple. But then there's a second question asked by the disciples there. They say, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, when they said all these things, they weren't referring only to the destruction of the temple. They were referring to the end of the age. We know this from how Matthew records Jesus' discussion with the disciples here. But we also know it because in the minds of the disciples, you couldn't have the destruction of the temple without the end of the age. I mean, this was the temple for all, for, for all purposes. And, and, and good heavens, if the temple was destroyed, surely the end of the age was going to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is going to tell them. Isn't this wonderful? In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is going to tell you about the signs of the end times, about what's going to come up, about news more current than your own newspaper can tell you. And Jesus is going to tell us about this in Mark chapter 13. But not this week. We're not going to get to it this week. This week, what we're going to discuss is what Jesus said would the times would be like before the dramatic sign. Well, let me put it to you another way. This morning, Jesus is going to tell us what the sign is not. And next week, we'll take a look at what he says what the sign is. Look at it carefully now, verse five. And Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Notice, first of all, what Jesus said. He said, take heed that no one deceives you. And how important it is for us as Christians to be careful that we're not deceived. 
Why do we need to be careful? Because there will be false Christ, false messiahs, and false teachers representing Jesus in a false way. It's as if Jesus is saying that the market will be flooded with counterfeit money. So when you get that bill, you better make sure that it's genuine. People are doing that nowadays. You've had it done to you when you're at the store. You give them a $20 bill, and the clerk comes, and they take out a little marker, and they mark on it. And at first, you take it kind of personal, don't you? It's like, what, you think I'm passing counterfeit money to you? But then you realize, well, there must be a lot of counterfeit money out there. That's why they're checking and making sure that this is genuine. Well, it's the same way in the world today. There's a lot of counterfeit truth out there. A lot of false things masquerading as the truth. So you'd better be careful. And this is the tricky part. Is that false prophets don't advertise themselves as false prophets. They're not going to stand in front of you and say, Good morning, I'm a false prophet. I'd like to deceive you. (laughs) So let's open up our Bibles and I'm going to twist the scriptures for you this morning. That's not how false prophets work. The other thing that makes false prophets difficult to detect is oftentimes we believe that a false prophet has to be wrong about everything. And so the false prophet comes and gives a five-point sermon. And you say, you know, point one was good, and point two was good, and point three I heard my own pastor say last week, and point four, boy, that's good too, and point five, well, that's heresy. And you say, well, four out of five, that's not bad. He's an 80% good teacher. (laughs) Oh, but friends, that's not how false prophets work. A false prophet doesn't have to be wrong about everything to be a false prophet. Matter of fact, if he was wrong about everything, you wouldn't listen to him for five minutes, would you? No, the problem is that they're wrong about the most important things, about the critical things. And that's why Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. There will be many that come in his name. And they'll deceive many. But Jesus said there was something else that we had to be aware of too, and that's in verse 7. He says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. You get the picture there. He says, Oh, yes, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. And whenever a people or a nation are in a time of warfare, Whenever the civilians are being affected, whenever people are dying, whenever there's that sense of national tragedy and calamity, there's always a tendency to think, it's the end. This is it. Jesus must be coming. Look at how terrible things are. Well, you could chart it out through the wars of this century and see how people, well, they start going to church more during a time of war, don't they? Because they wonder, is this the end? There's an urgency to get right with God. Uh, Calamities, whether they be man-made or natural-made, they make people think this must be the end. And so Jesus says they must happen, but that's not the sign. Look at it here, verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. In other words, the the great famine, people panic and they think, well, it must be the end. And it's a terrible catastrophe for those people. But it's not the sign of the end, nor is the war, nor is the earthquake. We've always had a tendency to think whenever some catastrophe hits, it must be the sign of the end. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. These things will happen, but they're not the sign. Maybe I should bring it home to a real personal thing. Remember several years ago, the Northridge earthquake. And you experienced that, or many of you who lived in this area, and maybe you had your own thoughts that this was the end. 
I remember one pastor telling me about how he and his wife, and they lived very close to the epicenter. And you know how it is, the closer you are to the epicenter of an earthquake, the motion doesn't feel like a rolling motion. It's a violent up and down shaking. You know, that's how you know. If, if you feel an earthquake and it's sort of a rolling, you know, fluid motion, you say, well, we're not very close to the epicenter. It's happening somewhere further away. But when it feels up and down, you say, oh, we're right there. And this pastor and his wife, there they were. You know, it was the middle of the night, of course, or the early morning hours. And they're asleep and everything's fine until the earthquakes hits. And all of a sudden, the whole bed and the bedroom and the house is violently shaking up and down. They're upstairs on the second story, which makes it even worse. And, and of course, the the noise is unbelievable. didn't think it would make such noise, but it, they felt like a bomb had gone off. And, and immediately they got to grab onto each other and they cried out and they were convinced, Jesus is coming back. This is it. <laughs> and I think when we laugh at that, it's kind of nervous laughter because many of us had the same thoughts at the time, didn't we? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. It's not going to be an earthquake. It's not going to be a famine. Those are not the signs of the end. I'll tell you what the sign is. We'll take a look at that next week. (laughs) You know, they do it on television all the time. They tease you for the next week's show or whatever. But I do want you to notice a phrase that Jesus used at verse 8. He said, these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, when he used that phrase, he's using a very specific phrase that literally means the beginning of labor pains. And the idea is that the world is sort of giving birth to a new world. And there's going to be labor pains involved. Now, I've heard it said to me, and I've noticed from observation, though not from personal experience, that the characteristic of labor pains is that as the time of birth approaches, first of all, the pains become more severe. Secondly, they become more uh, frequent. They're closer and they're coming together. And so I think that we can say that although Jesus indicates for us that wars and earthquakes and and all of these things, that they are not the sign at the same time we should expect that as the time of the end draws closer, that you would see more wars and more intense wars, that you would see more frequent earthquakes and more intense earthquakes, that you would see more famines and more frequent famines, Uh, More intense famines, I should say, you see, because that follows the pattern of labor pains. Now, I could go and spend all the rest of our time this morning documenting this for us, but don't we see this in the world around us today? Just look at the last century. It's been a time of more frequent wars and more intense wars. It's been a time of more frequent earthquakes and more intense earthquakes, of more frequent famines and more intense famines. You get the picture here. The babies ready to be born. But Jesus has something else to say to us, beginning at verse 9. This is more of a personal message for his followers. He says, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And all the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. 
You know, the earthquakes and the famines and the wars and the catastrophes. That's bad enough, isn't it? But then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, there's a special burden upon you in the time between when I leave this earth and the time when I come back, you're going to face persecution. I know this is difficult to talk about to this audience, not because you're not paying attention or not because you don't know these things from the Bible, but if we're going to be very honest with ourselves, we're out of touch with persecution, aren't we? We know what it's like to experience a bit of of social persecution for the sake of the gospel, but to really suffer, to, to, to lose lives for the sake of following Jesus Christ, that's something that seems distant to us. But it's not distant to the rest of the world. And Jesus said, even though you're going to be persecuted, even though this opposition is going to come, you still have to get the gospel out. Did you read that in verse 10? Where he said, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Oh, you know, when Christians are persecuted, oftentimes we feel like, well, I have to circle the wagons. Boy, you have to just conserve all your energy here. The last thing we can think about doing is reaching out when we're persecuted so greatly. And Jesus says, no, when you're persecuted, you still have to get the gospel out to all the nations. It's as if the enemy has surrounded you on every flank and all you don't have any room to maneuver and the enemy's pressing in. And there's only one thing you can do. Charge forward. That's all you can do. And that's what Jesus says. Go forward, preach the gospel, spread it to all the nations. And I thank God as we look across the world today, we see the body of Jesus Christ actively pursuing, getting the gospel out to all of the nations. Sometimes it's through tremendous technology, you know, the internet, even though it's been a tool for tremendous evil, and and some of that evil has affected families in a terrible and painful way, it's still been a tool for tremendous good, hasn't it? And the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word has gone out in a remarkable way all over the world. And then we look at at great things like radio and other forms of media that spread all over the world and preach the gospel in a powerful way. We thank God for every missionary, for every radio broadcast, for every witness over the internet that goes forth and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word of God is going forth and we should be committed to supporting it, to helping it in any way we can. God forbid that we get that sort of safe, you know, well, we're fine here in our own community and it's a great community and we love it. But God says, does your heart break for the world? Because God's heart does. So he wants us to have that passion. Even in a time of persecution, and the persecution would be so severe. Look at it there in verse 12. He says, now brother will betray brother to death and his father is child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Friends, that's severe persecution. The first thing you think of, you think, how could you stand against that? Well, I think you have to consider that if you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and if you're committed to him at the moment then in that great moment of stress, he'll give you the resources to do it. That's exactly what he promised, right? He said, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you speak. He says, don't worry about what you'll say or how you'll testify for him. When you put on the spot at that critical moment, at that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. Now, based upon this verse, I've decided that I'm going to stop preparing for Sunday morning messages. I figured during the week, my golf game certainly needs work. Good heavens, I can use all the time in the water that I can take advantage of. So, well, no, I'm just joking, aren't I? 
although I should say that some preachers or pastors have actually used this verse as an excuse for laziness, for sloppiness in the pulpit. They say, well, the Holy Spirit will give me at the moment what I'm supposed to say. Well, good heavens, nobody should follow a pastor like that. You're not giving attention to the Word of God. You're not having the heart of God to prepare. And I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to me as I'm speaking to you, but I believe the Holy Spirit also speaks to me in the study. Besides, those are glorious times that I don't want to be taken away for anything. I have a hard time deciding sometimes which is, which is more wonderful and satisfying for me, my time in the study or my time in the pulpit. It's both time where the Lord meets me, and, well, I get to meet you as well here in the pulpit. But that's the, the whole essence there is he's saying, don't worry about it. If you want a great fulfillment of this, write in your Bible in the margin, Acts chapter 4, and read that chapter and see how the Holy Spirit gave utterance to the Apostle Peter at a critical time when he and the other disciples were hauled forth before the Sanhedrin. I mean, there he was on the spot, Peter, who had denied Christ just a few weeks earlier. There he was giving bold testimony to the very men who sentenced Jesus over to Pilate to be executed. And here he was giving a bold testimony. This this promise was fulfilled and it's been fulfilled ever since. Even in the midst of some of the most difficult persecution, I don't know what could be more difficult than brother betraying brother to death. Think about that. Your own brother turning you over to the authorities. Your own father, your own children betraying you. Well, he's a Christian. You can come and take him away. You see, the followers of Jesus should expect the most painful kinds of rejection and betrayal as they seek to stand strong for Jesus Christ. You know, it's easy to underestimate how difficult a time of persecution can be. Inside this building, you, you all look like a pretty friendly bunch, and so I'm not really afraid to, to preach the word or to say Jesus Christ is Lord and that we should all surrender our lives to Jesus and, and live for him. I'm not afraid to say that here. And if I were to say it in a less friendly place in our culture, I might face some social rejection. People might shout out at me and tell me they think I'm stupid or, or you know, I'm, I'm a real dummy and leave me at that. And, but that's not much, is it? See, but if I, if I came from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider me a blasphemer and account me as dead for choosing Jesus Christ. If I came from a strict Muslim family, I might be rejected by my family and I might literally be killed for choosing Jesus Christ. If I came from a Hindu family in India, I could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. In China... I'd be allowed to practice Christianity, but only in one of the state-sponsored churches. And if I ran afoul of the state-sponsored pastor, I could wind up in jail. Or if I went to one of the non-state-sponsored churches, my church might be one of the 1,500 churches that's been demolished or shut down since November of last year. In Sudan, I might literally be killed or enslaved by a Muslim army. In Indonesia, I might be given a choice by Muslims, convert to Islam or die. Or I might have my church bombed during a worship service, as happened to several churches in Indonesia just this last Christmas time. 
Or if I lived in Pakistan, I might be jailed by Muslim government officials. Or in Saudi Arabia, put in jail. Or in Colombia, if I was a missionary, I might be kidnapped and held for ransom. And I could go on and on all over the world. Don't kid yourself, friends. The age of martyrs is not over. According to David Barrett in his book, Today's Martyrs, 165,000 Christians died for their faith in the year 2000. 165,000 died for their faith in this last year. Some researchers estimate that since the day of Pentecost, more than 43 million Christians have been put to death for their faith in Jesus over the last 2,000 years. And in today, it's going on, a, a persecution index provided by Open Doors with Brother Andrew and his ministry there. He lists 28 countries in the world today with strong or massive persecution. And then he lists another 23 countries where Christians suffer discrimination and in some cases severe harassment. And then we look at our own Christian lives, don't we? Makes me feel a little uncomfortable. You see, knowing how Christians have stood for Jesus during the centuries and how our brothers and sisters are being persecuted all over the world, it makes me ask myself, what kind of stand am I making for Jesus Christ? Am I lukewarm? Do I serve him or advance his kingdom when it's convenient, when it's comfortable? If others are sacrificed and making the ultimate sacrifice for him, what kind of sacrifice will I make for Jesus in the midst of my comfort and ease? Or do I just advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ with, with the leftovers? See what Jesus said at the very end of verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You know, endures translates an ancient Greek word that literally means to remain under. I don't know about you, but given my own fallen nature, that's not what I want to do in a time of trial or persecution. I don't want to remain under. My prayer to God is, get me out of this. But God says, no. There are times and there are places where I call you simply to remain under and to not compromise. You see, we can't be so desperate for an escape from the trial or desperate for an escape from our difficulty that we compromise. Instead, God says, remain under. Friends, what will shake you in your Christian life? Will events shake you? Catastrophes, wars, earthquakes, famines. Let's say there's a great economic downturn and you find yourself at a difficult place financially. Were you going to turn your back on the Lord? What will shake you from your Christian faith? Maybe events. Maybe people will. Oh, Lord, if my husband or if my wife, if they fell away, I don't know if I'd follow you anymore. If my dear friends who are around me right now, if they forsook you, would I still follow you? Well, you need to be able to say, Lord, my commitment to you isn't based on events. It's not based on other people. It's based on the greatness of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross at Calvary. You gave it all for me, Jesus. How could I give any less for you? That's the place where the Lord wants our hearts. So friends, God calls each and every one of us to take a look at our lives and say, what will shake you this week? 
Now, maybe not one great earthquake would shake you. But maybe a lot of little rattles would do it. So God gives us the strength to stand against both the big things right in front of our face and the little things that would shake us all through the year and the month and the week. Say, what will you stand for Jesus Christ in the midst of? It might be a funny morning in the minds of some people to say, do you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You take a look at the text, I just say, what, are you crazy? And I will agree with you that the Christian life is about the most difficult life that you could ever live, except for every other alternative. You see, the point of it is, is that Jesus Christ gives you an anchor and a hope and a strength in whatever difficulty comes your way that nothing, nothing ever else can replace. Perhaps this is your morning to come to faith in Jesus Christ or to stand in faith with him. Let's pray together right now. Father, I pray and I ask this morning that you'd move upon us, that you'd speak to hearts by your Holy Spirit and give us a sense of the greatness of what Jesus did for us. Lord, we pray that you would inspire hearts to stand strong for Jesus. And I pray that you'd call some, Lord, to salvation in you right now. The people who have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, even, Lord, in the midst of such a hard message as this this morning, they'd say, well, at least that's something worth living for and dying for. They'd give up their small ambitions and follow Jesus. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we'll make a stand for you and where events or people cannot shake us, but our roots are deep in our Savior. Call many to this decision this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.